Hello and welcome into another episode of the Esports Network podcast in partnership with Reuters. As always, I'm your host, Mitch Dreams, and today we're talking about esports healthcare. It's a topic we've covered on the podcast in the past, but not for a while, and not with this guest. He provides a very unique perspective. Dr. Dr. Chekai, Corey J. Chekai, DC chiropractor and owner of Esports Healthcare. Thank you for joining the show. My pleasure. Thanks for having me. I'm excited to talk about all these details today. Me too. Corey's one of the experts in the space. Oh, before I get into it, Dr. Chekai or Corey? Uh, Corey's fine. Okay. We're going to go with Corey. I wasn't sure I, on the intro. <laughs> I was like, Dr. Chekai, may, maybe not. I uh, like to give the doctors the benefit of the doubt. They, they work for that title, at least. <laughs> so Corey has written about posture education, 15 ailments that may interrupt a gamer's career, blog posts about interesting health topics, including sleep, hydration, cannabis, some product reviews. He's also created four videos, including a warm-up routine, stretch routine, injury prevention exercises, and a dexterity routine for the fingers, all with the goal of improving gamers' health, be that mental health, physical health, uh, whatever has you feeling wrong while you're playing games. He also has created a posture education and correction program. It'll be linked below this podcast. It's a 59-page PDF with posture education and 21 exercises slash stretches to counter the ill effects of prolonged sitting, something we're all suffering from amidst this quarantine. These exercises correct imbalances such as upper cross syndrome and lower cross syndrome, probably things that are affecting you and you don't even realize right now. So Corey, as you work with so many different gamers, what are the most common issues you see in the average gamer? Something that might be affecting them and they don't even realize it's something they need to be watching out for. I think the three biggest things that we would see as an issue for, for the everyday gamer is going to be what they eat, basically what they're fueling their body with. And then in general, their posture, that seems to be a big issue. It's just why we went into so much detail with that PDF program. And then the last one would be the nature of repetitive strain. It's um, one of the injuries that is listed on our website, but it comes up actually in three or four different ailments. So the repetitive strain is, it ends up being a tendinosis injury. And collectively, I would say those three are probably the biggest concerns I, I see from the everyday gamer and also for the professional esports gamer. Are the issues that those two groups share, the average gamer and the professional gamer, very similar? Or are there some things that are unique to people who are gaming eight, nine, ten hours a day, you know, as gamers, I think we all wish we could do that. But generally, very few of us have the time or ability to, to actually play video games that long. So there's some issues that come to just the esports pro, the long streamer that's, you know, really playing these games for the majority of their day. Yeah, I think the the gamer who is professional playing at, at the high level of esports or the the streamer who's playing for maybe eight, ten hours every day they're more likely to experience the tendinosis injuries, those repetitive strain injuries. I think they'll pro they would probably also be affected by the posture if they're not paying attention to the way they're sitting. And again, I mean, all three of them, even the, the eating and what they're consuming. But I think with a lot of the esports now, especially some of the more professional leagues, like the Overwatch League or the Call of Duty Franchise League, a lot of those teams are starting to incorporate coaches, whether it be health coaches or nutritionists. So hopefully some of those details are getting 
identified and, and corrected while it's happening. But for the streamer at home, I would say it's more likely that they'd be experiencing all three of those because they don't have a professional looking over their shoulder trying to help them fix the problems. Yeah, can you break down tendinosis and these different... There's so many words like that that average people hear, and I think tendinitis. Uh, Can you break down exactly what these words mean and why they cause issues? Yeah, so there are probably three common terms that you'll hear for for this type of injury and then there's another group of them which are categorized kind of in the same in the same vein so the, the collectively we describe them as repetitive strain injuries it's the idea that you're using the you're using the the muscle and the tendon too frequently and i don't particularly love that term because it's it's a little bit misleading the other ones that you'll hear, overuse strains, overuse tendonitis, overuse tendinosis. And again, I think some of those are misleading. So we'll start from the top. If you hear the term tendinopathy, that is simply explaining that there's a pathology of the tendon. So the, the, that suffix pathos is in reference to something going wrong. So patho is, could be a suffix or a prefix. As a prefix, it would be something like pathology, telling you that there's a problem. At the end of the word, the suffix, it would be something like tendinopathy, which again indicates that essentially just something is wrong. So under that umbrella, tendinopathy would also include both tendinosis and tendinitis. And so I don't love tendinopathy as the broad term because it's it's kind of overarching and it, it hits a little bit of everything. More specifically, tendinitis, the suffix I-T-I-S, is an indication that there's an inflammatory process. Inflammation is categorized clinically by having having some level of pain, of course, but then along with the pain, you'll have redness, the redness of the skin. You'll have some level of swelling. It could be a little bit. It could be pretty significant. And then the last one would be that it it would be warm to the touch in comparison either to the skin nearby or the skin on the the opposite side, for example, if it was like a wrist. And in terms of the cellular structure, so histologically, what inflammation is telling you is that there's increase in blood flow and more specifically increase in certain blood factors like white blood cells that are tasked with the job of coming into that structure, breaking down debris, and then bringing the right proteins and other molecules to rebuild the structure back to normal. So essentially uh, tendinitis would be an inflammatory process. An inflammatory process is an attempt to heal some level, some level of damage. Where tendinosis is specifically explaining there's, there's a problem with the tendon, but it's not inflammatory in nature. So clinically speaking, you your tendinosis would not be red, it would not be swollen, and it would not be warm to the touch. Of course, the pain still exists, so that's part of it. But histologically, when you look at a tendon that's suffering what we describe as a tendinosis, it's not increased in blood flow. It doesn't have the infiltration of some of these white blood cells and other inflammatory factors. Instead, what we see in tendinosis is a breakdown of the tendon matrix. So we describe it sometimes as a degeneration of the collagen, uh, a disorientation of the tendon fibers. Uh, There's different ways to explain it, but ultimately what it's saying is if you picture a tendon under normal circumstances, you would you would see pa- 
the fibers of the tendon being essentially perfectly parallel. But in a tendinosis, instead of being perfectly parallel, you'll see a jumbled orientation. Some of them will be, instead of being straight, they might be zigzag, they might be hooked. And one way I describe it is, is picturing what it would look like uh, underneath Velcro. So if you pull apart Velcro and you hear that tearing, that the tendon starts to look more like that than it does perfectly linear. And the tendinosis is something that would happen with repetitive overuse uh, and specifically repetitive overuse in an imbalanced movement where tendinitis tends to be a more acute strain. So picture your, your runner, your sprinter, for example, running down the track and coming up short, holding the back of their leg. And maybe they just pulled their hamstring. If they damage the tendon in that, in that instant, that person has tendonitis because their tendon had a, a, mac, a more macro trauma in a very short period of time. So they will have inflammation in their tendon and that's a different injury where for gamers, our movements are repetitive strain. We do the same movement over and over again. And the imbalance in small movements in that, in, in that uh, example is going to cause that disorientation, that breakdown or degeneration of the collagen. So it's a pretty, it's a significant difference in the injury. And because of that, of course, it's a significant difference in treatment. So that's, that's really the big issue. The treatment of a tendonitis would include relative rest. So usually gentle movement just to make sure the blood is flowing and ice and other anti-inflammatory uh, modalities where the treatment of tendinosis with the disorientation of the tendon fiber would include a three-step process we describe as one would be aggressive cross friction, essentially digging into the tendon crosswise. So if the tendon goes up and down, you scrape left and right pretty aggressively. Unfortunately, it ends up being quite painful. The second step would be a heavy eccentric loading. So where you think overuse you would think to not use it as much. One of the ma major protocols is actually to use it more, but in, the, in, a, in a different fashion. So the heavy eccentric would be taking a heavy weight and lengthening the tendon under that tension. So for example, if the down, the down phase of a biceps curl would be your eccentric, and that's putting a huge amount of tension on the bicep and, and its tendon. So we do the same thing with the tendon in question for a tendinosis after the cross friction. And lastly would be to continue heating it. Heat therapy for a tendinosis actually works much better than tendonitis. Uh, than, sorry, heat therapy for tendinosis works much better than ice would because tendons by nature don't have a large amount of blood flow. So to add ice to it would further decrease that blood flow and inhibit your body's ability to heal. Because essentially, if you're going to heal a structure, you need the blood to bring nutrients and oxygen and, and carry away debris. So without blood flow, you don't have healing. So in a tendinosis, you want to keep heat. So you keep increasing the blood flow. So kind of a long winded explanation, but you can see the difference. A tendinitis and a tendinosis are significantly different and the treatment protocol also significantly different. And if you get it wrong, you could actually make the problem worse before you make it better. Definitely. And, you know, there's going to be quite a few of those long-winded answers because I'm not about to be jumping in on these topics. I, <laughs> you're the true expert here. And while a lot of these podcasts are like, oh, I can offer some insight on this or that. 
not so much on healthcare. So I'm I'm gonna be listening here just as much as our listeners will be, uh, <laughs> because you know I'm learning some stuff here too. When you, I have a couple follow ups based on that. You talk about tendinosis, and you make tendinitis being the comparison to a runner. Would tendinosis be something like tennis elbow, or something like that? Is that a comparison? I'm trying to equate it to the other side of the sports injury where you do something more or is this less common in sports because you're using your muscles for a wide variety of things by the definition of most sports you're you're actually exactly correct the the tennis elbow is the classic presentation of of a tendinosis strain and it's actually the name given to a a, a, uh, an injury we actually call lateral epicondylosis so what that means, the, the attachment site for the tendon or the tendon structure, because it's actually a conglomerate of multiple tendons, goes into a, a part of the bone on the outside of the humerus, which is your arm bone. And it, it connects to at the, right around the level of your elbow. There's a bony structure going out on the thumb side called the lateral epicondyle. And the attachment site for this tendon is the site of the injury. So lateral epicondylosis would be your tennis elbow in in sports like tennis and it's actually one of our injuries in gaming we call it mouse elbow because it happens most frequently in pc gamers because of the use of the mouse it'll happen significantly less often on their left hand at the keyboard but it it still can but back to the sport example your sports specific tendinosis strains would be the tennis elbow for tennis players and the cause of that for it's usually amateur tennis players and it occurs because of a miss uh, an inappropriate backhand so most a lot of amateur tennis players will tend to flick their backhand by flicking their wrist and what's end up what ends up happening there is they're shortening that tendon every time they strike it with the racket because they're they're extending their wrist but when they do a forehand they don't flex their wrist back their, their wrist back the other way so you, you're creating an imbalance. The imbalance I hadn't mentioned prior is twofold. There is too much shortening without lengthening. So that's the easiest example we always use is the biceps curl. If you pick up the weight, you curl it from your hip to your shoulder, we call that concentric. And that would be shortening of the muscle, shortening of its tendon. If we use the same example, lowering the weight from your shoulder back to your hip is still using the biceps muscle, but it's going, it's, it's actually increasing the length. Ultimately you're decelerating the force or the resistance of that weight. So that would be your eccentric. In tennis, flicking the wrist is concentric, but there's no eccentric action to counter that. If you have somebody who plays golf, we call it golfer's elbow. It's the, it's the same injury, but on the inside of the elbow versus the outside, because an amateur golfer will on the, on the back hand of whichever side they're swinging will flick that wrist into flexion and the same thing they create flexion without creating the eccentric action of that the other the other portion of that imbalance is agonist versus antagonist so every muscle in your body has if you could describe its action would be the agonist so our biceps example the agonist is the biceps the antagonist for that would be the muscle of the tricep pulling the elbow back into extension under resistance. So in the tennis example, your agonist action is you're flicking your wrist on your backhand. But then when you usually those same tennis players on their forehand will swing the forehand with their whole arm from the shoulder and not flick their wrist back. So they're getting shortening of the, of the wrist 
extensors with the flick of the wrist on backhands without the eccentric lengthening of the same action. But then when they turn around and do the forehand, they're not flexing their wrists. So there's an imbalance on both sides, which ends up leading to the tendinosis problems. And, and that could be true. Tennis elbow, golf, golfer's elbow. Another common one in, in, in uh, other sports would be runners will often get a hip flexor tendinosis because they're driving their thigh forward. But it's that, that'll happen more often usually with somebody running uphill, but it could still happen with, with any runners. Those are probably the three most common that I see in traditional sports. Gotcha. I'm devastated that I can't keep flicking my backhand. It's so it looks so cool though. Yeah, the backhand flick is is the classic uh, mechanism of injury for your tennis elbow. So most uh, most tennis pros or, or people getting tennis lessons will be taught that when you swing your backhand, you're supposed to keep your wrist flat and swing with your arm rather than snapping your wrist. Of course, I'm sure there are times where snapping your wrist is appropriate. So if you're trying to get certain spin, but if you do that every time you backhand, you will likely develop that tendinosis of of the elbow. Oh, there was a time in high school when I tried to hit both forehands, left-handed and right-handed, and switch my mm. racket back and forth. So I'm definitely not the kind of guy that ends up getting these injuries. Yeah, I don't imagine that worked out for you. Uh, no, but my coach uh, loved it, so that was <laughs> that was great. He was like, "Well, that's innovative. I haven't seen haven't seen one of the 300 kids I've teach tennis try to do that." But uh, yeah, switch hitting was... in baseball common. Switch hitting in tennis not so much. Not so much. I thought I was onto something though. I, I hit a couple <laughs> hit a couple left handed forehand winners. It was like, look at this. But the second the ball starts coming in faster, that yeah. goes out the window. You can't you can't do anything like that. But <laughs> JV tennis, it worked okay. It worked there okay. Go. <laughs> Good times. I haven't thought about my tennis days in a long time. <laughs> well, getting back to gamers, you mentioned how the mouse elbow is one of the key issues for tendinosis. What are some of those other common muscles? I have to imagine fingers, wrist, uh, going all the way up, maybe even to the shoulder, maybe some posture-related stuff. Uh, where are those other really big problem areas for gamers? So surprisingly, tendinosis strains don't usually occur at the wrist. There, there are very few ailments that actually damage the tendons at the level of the wrist. So for example, mouse elbow is the irritation of muscles that attach to the fingers and to different portions of the hand and wrist, but the pain ends up coming up at the elbow. Similarly, if you, it'll, it's, it'll be more common in console gamers would be what we described just a minute ago is the, is the golfer's elbow. So that's the same ailment, but instead of with the extensors on the outside of the forearm, it's with the, the flexors. So that's what closes your hand and flexes your wrist towards the palm side. Those, muscles and those tendons, the, the ailment will develop on the inside of the elbow. So it's the same ailment as tennis elbow, just on the reverse side. And some other common ones that we see, uh, you had mentioned shoulder, so you were correct on that. We usually call that one mouse shoulder as well. It tends to be more common in the console gamers. And again, more common in the right arm versus the left because of the use of the mouse. And the mechanism for all of these ends up being the same. There is too much shortening, so the concentric version of the contraction, without lengthening of that same muscle, the eccentric. So that would be 
the equivalent of curling your bicep and then dropping the weight and then picking it up and curling it again and dropping the weight versus allowing it to lower down. There's actually no instance in gaming that, that we know of that has a resisted eccentric action. So for example, the, the problem with using the mouse isn't clicking down on the buttons, but it's it's the fact that the wrist position is already slightly an extension. And then the, the fingers are lifting off the mouse. So that increases some of the, the extension. And then the other side of it is the bending sideways back and forth. Since your wrist is already extended, if you bend your wrist side to side in a position of extension, you're in, you end up using two muscles that are also involved in extension to do that. So you, you're just shortening those over and over again, but never lengthening them. For mouse shoulder, it would be potentially going from the keyboard back and forth to the mouse or moving the mouse back and forth for aiming uh, versus if you picture the left hand, the left arm doesn't really move much. You're, when you place your forearm on the, on the table to use your, your, your keyboard buttons, your arm doesn't really move and it, and it won't, but your right arm will move left and right, forward and back. So you, you get more activation of the, it's, it's actually the biceps muscle and it ends up being the long head tendon of the biceps at, at the level of the shoulder that gets irritated. And another one that's similar, but not exactly the same is actually a true inflammatory condition called game. We call it gamer's thumb. You might hear it as texter's thumb. You might hear it as a bunch of other names for people who use their hands a lot. Ultimately, it's the same injury across different industries, d different types of use. But the the kind of standard medical term we describe it is Dacorvain's tenosynovitis. So that's a mouthful name. But what that means, tenosynovitis is in reference not to the tendon itself, but the, the sheath around it. So there's in certain areas of your body there are there there's a structure that surrounds tendons called we call it the tendon sheath or a synovial sheath. The purpose of this is to allow a tendon to go underneath or around a structure where there might otherwise be increased friction. So your body's really good at getting rid of friction, just like in your car. If you have friction, there's damage. So in your body, if there's friction, there would be also be damage. So instead of having motor oil to slide two pieces of metal in your car together, we have tendon sheaths and other structures like bursa sacs to, to decrease that, that friction. And in an area around your thumb, there's two muscles, one called the extensor pollicis brevis. The other is called the abductor pollicis longus. Those muscles, if you pull your thumb out and like a thumbs up and you look at the thumb side of your wrist, you'll see two tendons pop up at the level of your wrist. Those are the two that we're talking about and maybe an inch or two higher than the, the gap of your thumb where in that area, I just told you there's a sheath that that prevents friction and a lot the chronic overuse, the same idea using mouse, using console controller, uh, more common controller because of the thumbstick can increase actually a true inflammation of that sheath. So the tendon again is not the problem. It's not a, an, an inflammation of the tendon, but rather an inflammation of the tendon sheath. So back to the name, tenosynovitis. Teno is in reference to the tendon. Sino is in reference to the synovial sheath. And itis is telling you that it's inflammatory. So that ailment literally is telling you tendon sheath inflammation, tenosynovitis. And for that one, different than the three-step 
tendinosis treatment protocol of aggressive cross-friction, heavy eccentric loading heat therapy, this one would be a true anti-inflammatory protocol. So you do, we describe it as relative rest. You don't want to just stop using it, but you want to keep it mobile, keep a, keep their movements light, no, nothing heavy, nothing crazy. Then you do, you, you do different versions of anti-inflammatory therapy. So as a chiropractor and as somebody speaking on a pad, podcast, I'm not legally allowed to, nor would I find it appropriate to tell people to use anti-inflammatory medication, but that is certainly an option for those who have the advisory of their doctor. Um, using ice or contrast therapy is what I always recommend first. So icing it is just putting ice on it 10 minutes at a time, give or take. Contrast therapy would be to heat it first. So you put a, a hot packer or something warm, a warm compress on that area for 10 or 15 minutes. And then you immediately switch over to ice therapy. You put your hand in ice water or you put an ice pack on the same spot. Purpose of contrast therapy is first to heat it, to open up the blood vessels and loosen up all the structure. And then the ice will flush out the inflammation and clamp down the blood vessels so the inflammation doesn't stay around. And anti-inflammatory therapy for gamer's thumb for your tenosynovitis is the correct treatment because if you don't do that, it leads to an injury which is far worse. It's an injury called stenosing tenosynovitis. So it's the same thing, tenosynovitis, tendon sheath inflammation. But the, the stenosing portion in the beginning tells you that it's starting to become hardened and it's becoming stiff. So for example, if you've ever heard of or seen somebody with tr uh, trigger finger, that's an, a, a physical inability to open the hand. And that happens, that's a follow-up of a, of a poorly treated or a completely just not treated tenosynovitis leads to a, tr a trigger finger. And if you develop a trigger finger, a stenosing tenosynovitis, you need to have surgery. So the, the better thing to do would be to address it beforehand and address it the right way. Otherwise you'll end up under the knife, which is unfortunately the only treatment for that. And it's, in my opinion, surgery is the last option because it, it would generally be the worst option. So th yeah. those are your examples of tendinosis and gaming. And then added one more for the tenosynovitis because the similar injury, similar presentation, but a significantly different treatment protocol. It's a good indication. Yeah, you're going to hear doctors. Nobody's going to jump to put you under the knife. That's never. Yeah, I hope not. Every Yeah, that's if they are, you should probably get a new doctor. You need to, yeah. you need to find some other ways of treating things before things get dire. Obviously, in many cases, there's uh, no other option and you have to do that. But solving issues before they get to the point where surgery is required is always, always going to be the best option, the cheapest option. And is going to make you have the easiest recovery as well. Absolutely. You mentioned this this talk about, and with all these different terms, it's easy to get these conflated. But at the same time, we've seen this major rise in people getting their healthcare and their health knowledge from online mediums. And I'm not immune to this. This is a podcast with with uh, with a doctor, but YouTube videos, social media has allowed all these different health experts, uh, experts in air quotes, possibly, to talk about various issues with not necessarily the most, it's, it's way easier to set up a webcam 
put on a lab coat and call yourself a doctor than it is to actually go get a medical degree. So <laughs> why is it dangerous for people to receive, and you mentioned, you reached out to me about this, about how there's some people who appear to be mistaken about some of these different injuries and they're labeling themselves as health professionals and providing advice online. So for a listener who's worried about getting their health expertise from somebody who isn't qualified to do that, how do you help guide people into going through the right channels to understand more about these different issues and what might cause them? And then what are the dangers of getting it from somebody who might not know that? And you highlighted some examples. We're not going to name names and call anybody out here, but there is some misinformation out there. So what mm -hmm. are the dangers of that? And how do you help navigate that and make sure you're getting your information in from the right spots? So the trouble with that is there are certain ailments and certain injuries, certain illnesses, whatever you want to call it. There are certain things in medicine and in healthcare that have been widely accepted for such a long time prior that even with the new research coming out, if you, if you search, you'll find a lot of misinformation, even from people that you would expect to be experts, which is really unfortunate. And one example is that tendinosis versus tendinitis. For so long, tendinitis was what they called it. So it, it used to be collectively described as the, t the tendinitis, or when I named them before, the lateral epicondylosis. I called it ep epicondylosis because I'm telling you that it's not inflamed. Where if you actually, even still, we diagnose ailments using a coding system called the ICD 10. And the ICD 10 coding system still uses words like epicondylitis. So if when I, when I have somebody that I'm treating and I'm billing their insurance, I have to code it, unfortunately, as lateral epicondylitis, even though I know that there's no inflammatory process. And I can't get around that currently because there's no other diagnosis that, that has that ailment specifically for the insurance company to know what I'm treating. And so I have no choice. I have to use that. So our billing system in, in the United States is still behind on some of the, the, the most recent literature. And then some other ailments, similarly, it's just something that has been so widely accepted for so long, it became part of our nomenclature. And now that we speak that way, that's what we use. But unfortunately, for something like a tendinosis versus tendinitis, for other ailments that have similar issues like that, it's more than just a naming issue. It's actually, it, it's misguiding treatment. So to, the, to your question about what's the what's the danger the danger for something uh, the example i just used for gamer thumb for example appropriately treated you might experience these these pain this pain and these these dysfunctions in your thumb for a couple weeks and if you get it treated appropriately you do the right type of rest you might feel better in in two weeks three weeks if you get it if you don't get it treated correctly it doesn't just not get better it doesn't just feel painful longer it could progress to something so much worse where the, then the only recovery is your surgery. So stepwise, your, your gamer's thumb, your tenosynovitis would be you experience the pain. You notice that something's wrong. You do a couple of tests to confirm if that's what the issue is. If you confirm that that's your issue, you start your anti-inflammatory protocols. In a couple of weeks, it should start to feel better. It could even completely resolve. 
if you're doing your best with anti-inflammatory protocols, but it continues to get worse because that still sometimes does happen, unfortunately, the next step would be to get a cortisone shot. That's classically in medicine, the, the, the following step to your conservative care not working. And then the cortisone shot, if diagnosed correctly, that would usually do it. But if you skip all those steps and you don't treat it correctly, you're doing you're doing like therapeutic exercise and stretching and nothing else, it starts to get to that stenosing tenosynovitis. Now you have an ailment that you need surgery and there's literally nothing else you can do. So you went from maybe being fixed and, and feeling normal again within a couple of weeks to now you have surgery and you may never be the same. And the same thing can happen with some of these other injuries. It, it can happen really anywhere. So it's not so much about just the name. It's about misunderstanding the, what we describe as the pathophysiology. It's essentially what the, the word physiology is essentially just telling you, how does your body work? So pathophysiology, back to what I said earlier, patho meaning wrong. It's how is your body going wrong? So pathophysiology is essentially what's wrong. If you don't understand that, then you don't understand the treatment and you can't help somebody. And the trouble with that is the classics of tendonitis, some of these other old school, normal, you know, this is what we consider true, are have been debunked by more recent research. So it, it's sometimes it's not the provider's fault for learning it in school, because if the curriculum hasn't caught up, you're learning old information. But after graduation, all of us, every medical provider, every healthcare provider in, in our country and most countries that I've ever heard of, they require continuing education. So now the burden's on you, the provider, to continue to learn the relevant information on the topic, especially for the topics that you see or the things that you treat routinely. So for example, I don't go out and get continuing education for medicine because I don't practice medicine. But I always go out for continuing education on physical ailments. I, I learn a ton about fascia. I learn as much as I can about the, uh, the pathophysiology of, of muscular ailments, joint ailments, nerve ailments, and anything related to fascia. So same, likewise, anybody in my profession or, or my industry of alternative, conservative, or physical healthcare, wh whatever you want to call it, hopefully we'll be doing the same thing because that's that's how you stay ahead. That's how you continue to provide the right treatment for your patients. But there's too much misinformation. And it's also it's not just misinformation from people who are not medical providers. It's the same misinformation being perpetuated by healthcare providers in our industry. So the burden is on those people to continue use their continuing education to learn the new research. And if they're not going to seminars and not paying for these these types of continuing ed they should at least be researching on their own and that's something that here with with my group at esports healthcare we we work really hard on making sure the information that we provide is backed by recent research so i'm not we're not looking for articles that were written in 1980 to tell us that tendonitis exists we're looking for an article published within the last three to five years to tell us if is it tendonitis is it inflamed or is it tendinosis with the degeneration of the, the matrix. So we're not looking with a bias to say like, I need proof that it's tendinitis. I, don't need, I need proof that it's not tendinitis. We're looking at this research with an open mind to find out what's true. 
And the most recent research evidence on tendonitis tendinosis argument is that tendonitis is the acute strain. It's that sprinter example versus tendinosis is that overuse strain, which could be in gaming or even traditional sports like the tennis elbow. So generally, generally tendinosis is going to be the one that you're going to see way more often in gaming as there's less of the aggressive, like we say, sprinting, you're pushing mm -hmm. the limits to the actual absolute limit. Those muscles at the absolute limit in gaming, it's these long, slow, repetitive stress and do so it's, it's generally leaning towards tendinosis. Now I'm not going to diagnose everybody be like, if you're a gamer and you're hurt, it's tendinosis, but is that the one that's more common than tendinitis generally? Yes, absolutely. The likelihood of a tendinitis is in gaming is pretty rare. You would need, generally we look at tendinitis as more of a macro trauma. So that's something where if, if you had a microscope or even just looked at it with a naked eye, if you could actually see the tendon, you would see damage to the tendon structure at a on a macro scale, on a large scale, versus the tendinosis that we experience in gaming is microtrauma. Looking at a tendon that is, has a tendinosis with your naked eye, you might not notice any change in it, but at the micro level, there's some degeneration. Where a tendonitis, you'd probably see the difference. It would be something wrong with it. You, you would see the inflammation, you would see maybe a, a rupture or some other macro damage. So it's to, in order to do that, you need a pretty incredible amount of force. You think about the type of injuries that create ru tendon rupture. It's the, the sprinter running as hard as they can. It's somebody who slipped and fell or you know, landed on their wrist. We, the fall on an outstretched hand is a common mechanism. Those things are happening to people with pretty aggressive force, where in gaming, I don't know of any games that have a very aggressive force. If you're playing a game with aggressive force, I'd like to know about it because that sounds terrifying. But the back to your question about for, for, for the users, for people the reading article. information, for people who are looking at these YouTube videos and, and trying to learn this information, I don't want to put the burden on them because it doesn't seem fair to say that you need to learn this information and then look up where it came from and, and do that because... It's, that's, a, that's a challenging thing to do for somebody who's not trained to look up research evidence. But at the same time, I do want to put some level of burden on where are you getting your information? Did you get your information from Wikipedia? Or did you get your information from a research journal? Did you get your information from, you know, John Smith's uh, YouTube video on healthcare, who when you read his credentials, he's just some guy who likes gaming and has an interest, or did you get it from somebody who is a doctor in their field? And granted, back to what I said, that being the doctor in your field doesn't necessarily mean the information's correct because information changes and it's on us to use the continuing ed. So it's it's tough. It's it's kind of on all of us. It's on the providers to make sure we, we keep up with the recent research trends. And then it's on the, the consumer, you know, buyer beware. That's always the old, the old adage where if you're consuming information, you should you should verify it to the best that you can. And we try to do our best to verify it for you. So then it's easier for you to verify by, we're, we're actually going back now to our website and, and providing more of our citations, some of the research and research on both sides of it, not just to say what I said was right, but here's the opposing views and why we posted what we did kind of thing. So it's tough. So there's a lot of information a lot of misinformation. So it's on all of us to collectively 
do our best to fish out the wrong and come out with the right. Yeah, absolutely. And, you know, I want to be cautious of your time here, wrap up pretty soon. As you talk about all this new research, it feels like, you know, over the last three years, it's no secret that esports and gaming has had a moment and mainstreaming of it. And that also includes a lot more voices in gaming. That's esports organizations hiring doctors to help them improve player health and nutrition. It's gamers being more aware of some of the issues that might affect them uh, as more of these voices are amplified. Are we seeing a lot of new research in the space coming straight out of the academics and the the leading uh, thinkers in medical spaces focusing in on gaming? So there is there really this push of new information coming out, new research coming out that makes it even more important to stay on top of what's happening right now? So far, we haven't seen a ton of new research that's so specific to gaming. There are some research teams that are starting to look at it because they recognize the tremendous value of our industry in esports. But collectively, it's still not a huge population for the healthcare front. So the healthcare front is still looking at things as generalized, as generalized, where it's you're getting a tendinosis. So we're looking at, at tendinosis. And they're not necessarily looking at gamer populations alone. They're looking at people who develop tendinosis. They enroll them into research studies. And then they provide, hopefully, the randomized controls with the, with the double blinding and placebos and this and that. But the it's, it's not really, I don't think, particularly easy to just recruit exclusively gamers. While there's a ton of us, I think there's there was a statistics saying that something like 170 million people in, in America alone are participating in gaming, at least as a leisure activity. So there's definitely no shortage of us, but I don't, I don't know of my, many, many research industries or research groups that are putting all their focus and all their resources directly towards gaming. But I don't think they necessarily have to because at the end of the day, if you if you look at the pathophysiology, so that's that what is going wrong problem. If you look at the pathophysiology of a tendinosis, it's no different if it's if it's tennis elbow than if it's the mouse elbow or maybe a carpenter who uses a screwdriver or a hammer. At the end of the day, that's the same injury. It's the same injury three different times. It just the mechanism of the injury had changed, but at at the the cellular level the pathophysiology is basically 100% the same thing. So a lot of the research that we use for, for the putting together our information on my website is not specific to gaming. Cause unfortunately there's not a whole lot of, of the gamer specific research, but pathophysiology is, is it is what it is. I mean, it doesn't matter how you got there. Really. It's the only thing that the only portion of, the how you got there, the quote, how you got there part is if the mechanism of your injury is, potent, is partially through your body position or the gaming mechanics, then the only thing we need to know about the, the mechanism of injury is how to correct that so it doesn't happen again. But in terms of treating the ailment, a tendinosis is a tendinosis, carpenter, tennis player, gamer, they're all the same. I, I end up treating those clinically the same way, but it's just about how did you get there? And then we go, we look at your setup. Are you a carpenter using a screwdriver too much? 
here's ways to fix that. Are you a tennis player with a bad backhand? Here's how to fix the, the backhand. Are you a gamer using a mouse? Here's how you can prevent that. So I think the research for gaming has to be not necessarily specific to the ailment, but specific to the cause of the ailment. So we could identify factors that create it to learn how to prevent it better, if, if that makes sense. Definitely. You know, it's, and that's why it's important to have doctors or healthcare professionals who understand gaming and understand that, hey, people are playing on these computers for six, seven hours and it's very, it's tense. I think there's mm-hmm. a lot of old doctors that would not understand that that could be a potential cause of an injury as they, like, oh, I use my computer at work all day, but it's a way different way of using the computer, the way you're focusing, the way your hands tensed up constantly making movements it's important for your doctor to understand that if you think you have a gaming related injury so they could probably diagnose it because they understand what actions you're doing that might have caused this correct and the other side of that i don't think i had mentioned it yet but i think we all of us in the healthcare field or the healthcare industry that are getting involved in gaming we all recognize that the the only answer that's absolutely not appropriate is to stop what you're doing. So if you go to a, a provider, a local provider, and you have this injury and they figure out that it was caused because of your gaming, if their answer is to stop gaming, you find a new doctor because that's not a good answer. And that's not a good answer for gamers. That's not a good answer for anybody. If, if there's something that's causing your injury, the answer isn't necessarily to stop. That shouldn't be your first answer. It's kind of like the surgery answer. At some point, that might be the only option you have, but you don't start there. You, that's that's the last option. So you figure out why is it going wrong? What's happening? Let's figure out how you can continue to do what you love or in, in, in an esports athlete sense, continue to do what your job is. Let's allow you to continue that, but correct it so you don't get injured. If anybody tells you, oh, you have mouse elbow from gaming, stop gaming, it's time to find a new doctor because that's a terrible answer. Yeah, you could be totally safe if you wrapped yourself in bubble wrap and didn't leave the house all day and you would never really get physical injuries. So just stop doing everything. The interesting fact about that, though, is that maybe you never get a physical injury in that sense, but you'll certainly become incredibly unhealthy because that's a terrible way to live also. (laughs) Yeah, it's just a good example of don't tell people to stop doing things. Just figure out ways that they can do them healthy. Unless they're doing things that are clearly so horribly bad for their health. But gaming is not is not one of those things. There's just some things to be aware of as a gamer. So I want to wrap up there. Can you plug esports healthcare a little bit? Tell people where they can check out these resources. Like I said, I'll link some stuff below this podcast. But on a general basis, where should they be following? Where where should they be looking to making sure they're up to date on all the latest uh, news in gamer health? Our website is esportshealthcare.com. You can find us on Twitter. Uh, Twitter, our handle is esports and then an underscore health. So esports underline health. Our Twitch channel, we usually try to go live at least once a week. Wednesday at 8 tends to be our common time. That's also esports underscore health. Uh, that, on that channel, we my whole team gets on and we, we describe, we essentially go over health topics in gaming. Um, anything that we could think of, anything that people send in that, that they want to learn about, we'll spend an hour or so, kind of like what you and I did today. And we do that weekly, just 
discussing any topics in health. Those are the three main things that we do. Our YouTube channel is YouTube uh, Esports Healthcare, the full name. You'll find the, the four videos that you had mentioned earlier on that. We're trying to get some more videos in, but those are the big things. EsportsHealthcare.com, YouTube Esports Healthcare, Twitch and Twitter, Esports underscore health. Absolutely. You'll be able to find a lot of those resources in the description of the podcast. And then if you want those social channels, go to Corey's guest page, which should be right underneath the podcast as well. Click on that and you'll see a bunch of links to all their various social media profiles. So you can check those out. It's good to follow some some healthcare providers as you uh, look at your gaming life. You know, if you're 16 years old, you might not be feeling any symptoms, but I'm 25 now and I'm certainly feeling some stuff, some posture-related stuff, <laughs> some uh, some elbows, some mouse stuff if I play for a long time, uh, which I happen to do quite often. So it's good to be aware of these things if you can start to feel them because, again, it can be quite serious if you don't address them, you're not aware of them, uh, and then nobody wants to have surgery. No, you don't want to oh, have, of course have surgery. Not. Yeah, that's bad. That's bad. Don't do that. So just be aware of it. Make sure you know the symptoms, and then that way you can prevent any of these issues from becoming serious uh, later down the road. So, Corey, thank you so much for joining the show. It was great talking to you. Hope our listeners enjoyed this conversation, learning all these things about gaming healthcare. Thanks for having me. Take care.